Welcome, my name is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and we thank you for taking some time to listen to some audio recordings from the pulpit of the Riverview Baptist Church. Our desire is to show the Lord high, holy, and lift it up, as well as try to be a blessing to those through the Word of God. Please enjoy this message, and we pray that it will be a blessing to your life. And if you wouldn't mind to take your copy of the Word of God and turn with me to the New Testament book of James, the New Testament book of James in chapter number one. We're starting a brand new series this morning on the book of James. The book of James is the book of wisdom for the New Testament. Inside of the book of James, you're going to find very practical way of how to live as a New Testament Christian. Now, as you're looking for the book of James, remember the books of the Bible, you should be able to do them frontwards, backwards. Revelation, Jude, 3 John, 2 John, 1 John, 2 Peter, 1 Peter, and then the book of James. The book of James in chapter number one. The book of James chapter one, and notice with me in verse number one. James 1, 1. James, a servant of God, and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greeting. And if you're in the habit of marking things in your Bible, let's mark this first phrase in the first chapter, the first verse. James, a servant of God. And if you don't mind, let's get to know the pastor here. James is the pastor of the church of Jerusalem at this time. And as he is writing this book, he is writing for the purpose of trying to encourage people to how to live and how to behave as a first century church. Well, if you don't mind, let's just kind of get to know the pastor. We know that this man, James, was very interesting. There are several people named James inside of the word of God. We know that even in the New Testament, you have James, the son of Alphaeus, who was one of the disciples. But James here is the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. What's interesting about him is that he did not come to know Jesus as a Savior, except Jesus as a Savior, until after the resurrection. You say, well, why not? Well, <laughs> because it does make sense. Could you imagine what it would be like to grow up in a household where Jesus is your older half-brother? Because you would always hear, how come you can't be more like your brother? I can't. He's perfect. There'd be a lot of issues growing up. And even though Jesus preached and even though Jesus had done these miracles, none of his brothers or sisters, half brothers or sisters, had ever accepted him as Savior until after the resurrection. That's when it became real to them. There's something uh, old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. And being in the same house as the Lord Jesus Christ, so familiar with him, it made it very hard to say, this isn't just my half-brother, this is my Savior. That was a difficult thing. But it was the resurrection of Jesus Christ that made it real. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ, James came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior. But because he was his half-brother, had learned quite a bit about what Jesus had said, and had stepped into the role as the pastor of the church of Jerusalem. In James 1.1, he calls himself the servant of God 
and of the Lord Jesus Christ. In here, he's referring to himself. This idea of servant here is the idea of a bond slave. That I have purposely put myself as a slave under the Lord Jesus Christ. Under who God is. And that they could tell me what to do. I just want to be a help. Now, what makes this significant if he, as him being the pastor of the church is he's writing this letter. James is probably the very first New Testament book that was written. It was written for a time where people who, uh, who were part of the church normally were Hebrew people. And because the Hebrew people had been taught all of their life that in order to be saved and right with God, you had to do this and do this and do this and do this and for the Sabbath. And they would come with all kinds of rules, for example, not to break the Sabbath day. A woman wasn't allowed to look at a mirror on the Sabbath day. Why? Because you may see a gray hair and be tempted to pluck it out and that'd be work and you'd be violated. They had so many rules and so many things that when people people got saved and they accepted Jesus as their savior and they realized that it was by grace through faith and not of works that they said, well, look, I am now free from the bondage of law. Now I don't have to obey these rules. And what would happen is that they would swing the other way and say, "Woo, I'm saved. I'm going to heaven. Nothing can take it away. I don't have to do anything. And James is the pastor saying, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Wait a second. You don't, you don't get saved by your works, but guess what? You work because you're saved. You understand what we have is <coughs> a because of salvation, not in order to. Meaning, I don't serve God in order to get something from him. I serve God because of what he's already done for me. I serve out of a thankful heart, not trying to get something from him. What happens is that my service is a lot more pure and a lot more... Um, honest and a lot more uh, fervent because of it. If I'm trying to do something in order to get something from you, I'm not doing it because I want to. I'm doing it because I have to. Mm -hmm. Salvation is made because God has paid our price. We serve God because we want to, not because we have to. The motive is different. And James is now writing this to this first century church to try to encourage them how to behave, how to live as Christians. Now, we talk about this idea of a first century church that today we're in the 21st century. There's been a big movement, a lot of talk about becoming a 21st century Christian. And what they have in mind when they say that is that we have to update from the archaic things and we have to find out what the people want, not what the Bible wants, that we have to find out what attracts people, what, what they desire. And <laughs> there's a lot of foolishness that goes along with that. The idea here is that we need to have a revolution back to the Bible and that we need to learn how to become a first century Christian, not what we call a modern day Christian. Have a revolution back to the Bible. And so with this, we're going to cover through this series about how to live practically as a first century Christian. But before we do that, we're getting to know uh, James as the pastor, and we have to understand a little bit more about what is a first century church. Now, there's a lot of things going on with the idea of a church. There's a lot of things out there today that are called a church. But what does the Bible describe as a first century church? Because whatever a first century church is, that's what we want to be like. 
That's what we want to become. Does that make sense? We want to go and find out what the Bible has to say. So if you don't mind, let's learn some things about what the Bible says about a first century church. If you don't mind, we're going to look at several passages. Turn with me first of all to the book of Acts. The book of Acts chapter number two. Oh, actually, uh, Matthew, Matthew chapter 17, 16. Let's start there. Matthew 16. The very first thing we have to start with the church is the idea that the first century church was started with Christ and his disciples and was empowered at Pentecost. We want to be very clear. We want to try to be an encouragement. Some people have an, uh, different opinions of when the church was started. Well, let's see what the Bible has to say about this. What is a New Testament church, by the way? Is there a Bible definition? There is. A Bible definition of a first century church, a New Testament church, it is a group of baptized believers voluntarily gathering themselves together for the purpose of accomplishing the Great Commission. Now, this is a wonderful definition. Let's go over it kind of bit by bit. What is a New Testament church? It is a group of baptized believers. What is this? Well, before someone can get baptized, they first of all need to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Baptism doesn't save us. It is a picture of what Christ did for us. It is our public profession. It is a group of baptized believers voluntarily gathering themselves. That word voluntarily is important. None of you, unless you're a teenager or a kid, had your arm twisted for you to come to church today. You came because this is what you believe the Lord would have you to do. It, that's what God wants. He wants people to come to church voluntarily. We know that over the centuries, there have been some cultures that have made laws that you had to go to church. In England, they had the covenical law that if you didn't show up to the Church of England every Sunday, you were guilty, you could be put in jail. They put a Baptist preacher by the name of John Bunyan in jail for eight years because he didn't show up to the Anglican church. We believe that this should be voluntarily, that people voluntarily gather themselves together. Notice this, for the purpose of accomplishing the Great Commission. The word ecclesia, which is the word we put as church, in its most basic meaning is a group of people gathered together for a common purpose. Well, what is our purpose? Why do we gather together? Well, a lot of times churches gather together to act as a social club. Well, it's a time where we just fellowship and have a good time. But the idea of a first century church is a group of baptized believers who voluntarily gather themselves together for the purpose of accomplishing the Great Commission. That why does someone join a New Testament church? You don't join a New Testament church because of status. You don't join a New Testament church because you want to sit in the pew. The purpose of you joining a church is that you want to put your life and your ministry in helping that local church accomplish the Great Commission. Does that make sense? That I am putting my life, my influence in helping this local church do what God has given to do. Does that make sense? Yes. And so... The New Testament church should be a group of baptized believers voluntarily gathering themselves together for the purpose of accomplishing the Great Commission. Most churches participate in the Great Commission like I would if I was in the Boston Marathon. If I ran in the Boston Marathon, it would just to say, hey, look, I've been in the Boston Marathon. There's no way I'm winning it my shape today. I would just say I was participating in it. Most churches participate in the Great Commission the same way. Well, we were part of it. We, we were there. 
However, the Bible says that we need to be trying to accomplish the Great Commission. And we do that by organizing our efforts and us doing our part and expecting that other churches are doing their part. Does it make sense? That we have a part of, that we're supposed to play and we're doing it for the purpose of accomplishing it. Now that changes it because if the purpose of a church is not accomplishing the Great Commission, then why does it exist? If they're not trying to reach people with the gospel, trying to see people saved, trying to see them discipled so more people can go out. There's a purpose for it. Does it make sense? Now, <laughs> where did the church come from? Well, notice with me in Matthew chapter 16. The gospel record of Matthew chapter 16. And notice with me, starting at verse uh, 15. Matthew 16, 15. And he, Jesus, saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I, Jesus, say unto thee, Peter, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So notice, this is Jesus. Is this before or after his uh, death on the cross? Before. So this is before his death on the cross, and he's pulling his disciples aside. Who do you guys say that I am? Peter said, well, I believe that you're Jesus, the son of the living God. Correct answer, Peter. And Peter, let me teach you something. That Peter upon this rock. Now our Catholic friends would say, well, listen, Peter's name is Petros, which means little rock. Technically, little pebble. And so when Jesus is saying upon this rock, that Jesus has pointed to Peter and said, upon this rock, that I will build my church. That's not what he's saying. Sure, Peter means Petros, which means little pebble. But when he said this rock, he's saying big boulder. What he's doing is he's looking to Peter and said, Peter, little pebble, I'm telling you upon this rock. And Jesus points to himself. He, notice what he said, I will build my church. Notice Jesus is saying the personal pronouns. Jesus said, I, Jesus, will build my church. He didn't say you will build my church. He didn't say I will build your church. He didn't say you will build your church. Jesus said, I will build my church. Remember, we just talked about this the other day, that unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. It's God's house, God's work, God's thing. Who started the church? Jesus did because it's his work. And it started with a group of believers gathering themselves together for the purpose of accomplishing the Great Commission. The church started with Christ and his disciples. Now turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We know that Acts chapter 2 is a very big day. Jesus uh, died on the cross, was buried on the third day. He rose again, spent 40 days working with the disciples afterwards, and then he ascended up to heaven. When he ascended up to heaven, he told his disciples to wait in Jerusalem until ye be endued with power. Well, in Acts chapter 2, they're endued with power. The Holy Spirit came down and great miracle happened. Notice as we catch the end of the miracle in Acts chapter 2 and verse number 41. Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. 
And they that gladly received his word, so these people were saved, and notice they were saved first, and then after they were saved, they were baptized. And the same day were added unto them 3,000 souls. Now that's a pretty big deal. 3,000 people getting saved? But notice the wording of this. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day were added. In order for you to add something, something has to previously exist. Correct? So there was a church. It started with Christ and his disciples. And in the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came down, empowered the church, and 3,000 people were added to that local church in one day. So we're just trying to make things clear and define our terms because this is a big deal. Jesus is the one who started the church. And Jesus is the founder. He's the one who builds it. He's the one that depends upon it. That the first century church was started with Christ and his disciples and was empowered at Pentecost. What is something else that we see about a first century church? Well, notice was we're still here in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. That the first century church had a saved membership. Notice in verse 41. And they that gladly received his word were baptized. So they were saved first, and then they were baptized. And the same day were added unto them the third, uh, the 3,000 souls. So they were saved and baptized, and as they were baptized, they were added to the church. That means the people who were inside of the church, in order for you to be a member of the church, you could be a visitor, but we're talking about a membership. For you to be a member of the church, you have to be saved. You have to be baptized. Why is this? Because only saved people who have the Holy Spirit of God inside of them can be directed by God. And because it's his church, he needs to direct his church the way that he sees fit. Does that make sense? And so this is just the idea of practicality that a New Testament church had a saved membership. They had to know Jesus Christ as their savior before they're a member of the church. Notice as it goes on in verse 42, just to hit some things about the church. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship of breaking and bread and prayers. So here they're behaving as a church. Here's a third thing here that not only did the first century church start with Christ and was empowered at Pentecost, not only did they have a saved membership, but the first century church had Christ as its only head. Notice with me the book of Colossians. The book of Colossians. Some of you are working on your books of the Bible. So if you're in Acts, then we go to Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. Then you go to what next class? Ephesians. No, no, no. Galatians. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Good. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. Notice with me Colossians chapter 1, and notice with me verse 18. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. And he, this is Jesus, who it's speaking about in the context, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Here we have clearly listed who is the head of the church? Christ. Why? Because unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Jesus said, I will build my church. Now, what does this show up practically? That means our headquarters is up in heaven. Our headquarters is not in Nashville. It is not in Missouri. It's not in Rome. Our headquarters is in heaven. 
we get our instructions from God. What does that mean practically? That means that we as a church have to learn how to seek God for ourselves and find out what God would have us to do. So he can tell us what to do. That this is important because we need God to tell us. Now, traditionally, (laughs) when there's a denomination, by the way, we're not a denomination. We're Baptist in doctrine, but there is no denomination. Our headquarters is up in heaven. Nobody tells us what to do. Nobody tells us what to pay for, who to preach, or replace the preacher or anything. We believe our headquarters is up in heaven, that God's the one who directs that local church. He's the boss. He tells us what to do. We'll get to that more practically in just a second. But there's another thing here. The first century church was declared to be the pillar and ground of the truth. Notice with me, if you don't mind, 2 Timothy. So if you're in Colossians, then we start getting in what I call the T section. 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter number 3. 2 Timothy chapter number 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy rather, 1 Timothy, going to be the right Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, and notice with me in verse 15, 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 15, but if I tarry long, thou mayest know how thou oughtest behave in the house of God. Now let's pause there. This phrase here isn't talking about, all right, well, you need to make sure that you are uh, not poking holes in the back of the pew or the back of the chair that you're in there, or you don't take a hymn book and start writing in it. It's not talking about how you behave yourself in the service, but it's speaking about how you behave yourself as a part of the local New Testament church. That as a member of the church, you need to know how to behave yourself, how to live as a Christian, how to behave yourself. Notice as it goes on in verse 15. But if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. But notice the description here, the pillar and ground of the truth. That God has designed the local New Testament church to be the place where people can always go find the truth. Now they may not like the truth, but they know where to find it. Everybody who walks through those doors for the first time is coming in because they're looking for something. They're looking for a reason. They're looking for hope. They're looking for uh, what God would have them to do. They're looking for answers. And the answers come from the church, from the word of God. And God has made it so no matter where people are at, they always know I can go to church and find the truth. Unfortunately, with the state of churches today, it's why we're talking about what is a New Testament church. There's a lot of churches that people go to and they won't receive truth. I've had lots of people that said over the years, I was a part of this church for 20 years, 15 years, uh, and they never told me this truth. That's unfortunate. But God had designed it so when someone who maybe never been to church ever before, they go through something in their life and they said, I need some answers. They'd say, well, I know where to go. I'll go to a church. That's why people come to a church. They'll walk in. They'll never have never been to a church in their life. Maybe never been invited, but they walk through the doors. They're looking for something. God has designed it that way. So people can say, I was looking for truth. I was looking for answers. And I went to church because that's where I would get them. That's what God designed it to be, a place where they could have the truth. Today we have a lot of information, very little truth. 
And God has designed it so people can find where the truth is. Something else that we find, notice with me in the book of Acts, that every, the first century church was an independent congregation. Acts chapter 13. In Acts chapter 13, we're now putting our attention on another church, the church of Antioch. So we talked before about the church of Jerusalem. Now in Acts 13, we go to the church of Antioch. In Acts chapter 13, in verse number one, and there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manan, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said, notice this, that it was God that was directing them, God that was telling them what to do. Separate me Barnabas and Saul for the work whereinto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed, they laid their hands on them and sent them away. So they being sent forth by the Holy Ghost departed unto Seleucia and from thence they sailed to Cyprus. Now notice this is the church of Antioch. As they're getting ready to send two missionaries out, Paul and Barnabas, notice that they did not have to write a letter or make a call or send an email to the church of Jerusalem to see if they, it was all right. They acted independently of the church of Jerusalem because each church was supposed to get their direction from their headquarters, God, and God was supposed to tell them what to do and they were supposed to be obedient to that. That each church was to be an independent congregation. Sometimes people will ask us, why are we an independent Baptist church? Well, because we believe this is biblical. Because you know the golden rule, the one who has the gold makes the rules. With it being an independent church, that means that we have the right and responsibility to find God's will for ourselves. That also means that we need to be self-governing and self-supporting. We don't get any money from a government or from another church. Why? Because with that gold comes strings. That if another church was paying for us to stay afloat, they would feel like they would have every right and obligation to tell us what to do. You can't have this guy preach. You can't tell, have him do this. You can't support this. You can't have this function. You can't. Does that make sense? Yeah. Whoever has the gold makes the rules. Well, part of an independent congregation, sure, we may not have all the fancy things, but we have our people who voluntarily give. God blesses that and uses it to finance everything. Now we don't have any strings attached. We could go up to God. God, what would you have us to do? If God would have us to train people, then we would train people. If God has us to send out missionaries, we send missionaries. If God wants us to go knock doors in Green Bay, we go knock on doors in Green Bay. We don't have to get anybody else's permission because our headquarters is God. Our headquarters is in heaven. He tells us what to do. Does that make sense? Now, <laughs> this is a big deal to me because I didn't start off as an independent Baptist. I started off as a Southern Baptist. And in the Southern Baptist, they, have, uh, <laughs> they act more of a denomination but they have every local church give part of their money to what is called the cooperative program, which sounds really good in theory that they give a little bit of money. This goes in the cooperative program. From the cooperative program, they use it to help finance uh, pastors. So every pastor has health insurance. Every pastor has life insurance. Sounds good so far. Uh, 
that if a church went to go start uh, another church, they would already have money for the pastor to go ahead and start so he doesn't have to work a second job. He could just concentrate on the ministry. In addition, it covers the idea that um, uh, if a missionary wanted to go out to the field, he wouldn't have to go to each church and ask for money. They would just show up, do the review board, and send him out, and he could go directly to the field. Sounds pretty good so far. But then, with it, that cooperative program also uses to pay for their schools, colleges, and seminaries, and cemeteries where faith goes to die, because with that money, they use it to pay professors who will teach their students that the Bible's not the word of God. I have an issue with that. That's a big deal whatsoever. That's one of the main reasons why I became an independent Baptist by conviction, understanding this principle that each church was supposed to be an independent congregation, getting our learning how to find God's will for ourselves and then obeying it without someone having to clear it or pull the strings or whatever else. Does it make sense? This is a big deal. So that way God's the one who directs. Now people say, I don't like that. You know why people don't like that? Because that means that we have to do the work to find out what God wants for us. We have to learn how to read our Bible and pray and seek God's face for ourselves. It's much easier for someone to tell us what to do. But this is what God has given us to do is to find God's will for ourselves. And so each church was supposed to be an independent congregation. And that's why different churches can do different things. By the way, here's a little statement. Just because someone does things differently doesn't mean they're wrong. It just means they're different. And the good thing about independent Baptist churches is that they're all different. <laughs> that, that's the wonderful thing about it. We're just supposed to find out what God would have for us to do. And do that. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Something else about the New Testament church is that they took the responsibility to evangelize the world. Notice with me if you're in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1. Remember when we defined what the New Testament church was. It's a group of baptized believers voluntarily gather, gathering themselves together for the purpose of accomplishing the Great Commission. That we understand that this is what God has given us to do. Notice with me in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. But ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. That God says, listen, you start where you're at in your Jerusalem and you evangelize there and you also do all, notice that word all, all of Judea. And then when you're done with Judea, go to Samaria, which is the country to the north, and then go to the uttermost parts of the earth. There's no place to stop. You need to take the responsibility. Interesting enough that in the book of Colossians, there's a verse that's easy to miss, but it seems to indicate that the whole world had heard the gospel by the time Colossians was written and about 30 something years that the entire known world had been known. People look at that, the, that thing and say it's daunting. Well, how come it was in the 90s that Coca-Cola said, you know, we want to make sure that every person in, Coke, in the world had an opportunity to try a Coca-Cola. And by the end of the 90s, it had been accomplished. Now, don't we have something better than Coca-Cola? Yes. Absolutely. 
Well, you say, well, how does this work? How can we get the Great Commission accomplished? It seems so daunting. Well, we understand that if we do things the way we do it now, of course it's not going to get done. If we were to stop all the births and stop all the deaths so no one was being born and no one was to be die, die and we win people at the rate we're winning them now, it would take 4,000 years to win all the people currently alive. We're not getting the job done. Well, how do we get the job done? Well, in addition to telling people of the Lord, we have something called discipleship. You see, what happens is that if one person takes another person and they disciple them, they teach them how to develop the habit of obedience to Christ. And every person who's in discipleship, whether the discipler or disciplee, witnesses to one person a week. This goes quickly. That the first year, one takes one. The next year, two takes two. The next year, those four take another four. The next year, eight takes another eight. The next year, 16 takes another 16. The next year, 32 takes 32. Year seven, 64 takes 64. If you had 64 people who were able to teach others, would you have a fairly strong church? Yes. And then after that, 128 takes 128. Did you know statistically that if that was done correctly and they were witnessing to one person a week as they went along, that in less than 30 years, the entire world would have the opportunity to hear the gospel. You see, God has made it so it can be accomplished. We just have to obey what God's given us to do. And so God has given us the responsibility to accomplish the Great Commission. They took the responsibility to evangelize the world. This is what God had given them to do, and they organized their efforts so it could be done. Good. Then something else that we find about a first century church is that the first century church was pastor led. With that, turn with me to the first Peter. First Peter. First Peter chapter number one, or chapter five. First Peter chapter five. Inside of the Bible, the New Testament, there are three terms synonymous, that means the same thing, with the word pastor. Each one of those words describe uh, the same office, just different aspects of the office. That they have a pastor or shepherd, they have a bishop or an elder. All three of these terms are for the same office, a different description for that same office. Notice with me in 1 Peter chapter number 5, and you'll see all three of these things listed. Notice with me in 1 Peter chapter 5 verse 1, the elders which are among you I exhort. Now let's define our terms. What's an elder? An elder is someone who is spiritually mature spiritually mature. Well, if you're going to have someone leading the church, you should have someone spiritually mature. That makes sense. The Bible actually warns, don't put a novice there. Don't put someone who's new or not tested. You need to have someone spiritually mature. Why? Well, just practically, people won't grow past leadership. If leadership's here, people won't usually grow past that. That's why leadership needs to continue to grow. But it has the idea of someone spiritually mature. The elders which are among you I exhort, who also am an elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, which are a partaker of the glory that shall be revealed. Feed the flock of God which is among you. This is carrying the idea of a pastor or a, 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 a shepherd. Same idea, pastor, shepherd, that their job is to feed the flock, take care of the sheep, tend to the sheep, work with them. 
So the idea of an elder is someone spiritually mature. The idea of a pastor is someone who's taking care of the sheep, feeding the sheep. Verse two again, feed the flock of God, which is among you, and taking the oversight thereof. Here's our third time. The word bishop means overseer. And all that means is that someone who's in charge, someone who's held accountable. After all, someone needs to make sure the bills are paid, right? Someone needs to make sure that things are organized, put together. That's the idea of a bishops, an overseer, taking the oversight thereof, <clears throat> not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre that carries the idea of money. So not doing it for the money's sake. By the way, most independent Baptist people can honestly say the pastor's not doing it for the money. <laughs> but of a ready mind. Verse three, not as being lords over the God's heritage, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd shall appear, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. So here what we have is those three terms dealing with the idea of a pastor, a pastor, shepherd, a bishop, or an elder, the same office. Now with this, we find the three different um, congregational rules inside uh, administration governments inside of a normal independent church. There are three, um, uh, three church governments found inside of a church like this would be a congregational ruled, a pastor ruled, or a pastor led. What do I mean by that? A congregational rule carries the idea that the congregation makes the rules. That means they vote whether they can have toilet paper. They vote who teaches a class. They vote the congregation's the one who has the power. The pastor doesn't have any say. Well, we know that there's a lot of issues with that, with the idea that the pastor may have more information. We can't put a Sunday school teacher in just because everyone likes him if he's not qualified or if there's some issues there. Does that make sense? Then there's the idea of pastor rule that happens. The Bible warns against that. There are some times that pastor is the Lord of the thing. I know some pastors that said, listen, you shouldn't even buy a car unless you come see me and ask what color it should be. No, 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 that's, that's nonsense as well. The idea of a pastor led means, hey, you know what? I'm gonna teach you how to look for God and you're gonna look for God and I'm looking for God. And by the way, God, if we're both looking to God, God's not gonna tell you a different answer than he told me. And then as you're convinced this is what God is giving you to do, let's go together and let's do it. And that way people are doing it not just because pastor said to do that. They're doing it because this is what God has given us to do and they move together well. Now, this means that pastor has more responsibility of teaching people how to seek God for themselves and trusting that they're able to look for the Lord. And then we move together. That's the idea that, past, that God has given us here because everybody has the right and responsibility to find God's will for themselves. And we need to be going together. Does that make sense? And so here we have the idea that we believe that we should be pastor led, that the pastor is leading people to look for God and we move forward together rather than dragging people kicking or screaming or threatening or kicking or drop kicking or whatever people need to do. And so with this, we could see here is what a New Testament church should look like. We know that today there's a lot of churches out there that don't look like this. But we need to have a revolution back to the Bible and follow what the Bible has to say. And whatever the Bible says, that's what we want to be. What is a New Testament church? It is a group of 
baptized believers voluntarily gathering themselves together for the purpose of accomplishing the Great Commission. Now for the next remaining lessons we have in the book of James, we're going to go through what does it mean? How do I behave as a member of a church? How do I behave as a New Testament Christian? What is my behavior like? How do I act like? How do I respond? How do I live? And it's going to be a very practical book. But first, we needed to define what is a first century church so we could be able to have a way to define it and explain to others what does the Bible have to say concerning these things. Thank you for listening to this audio message. This is Pastor Scotty Bockhaus, and I encourage you to take this information that you just received and make a specific decision to follow after the Lord. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me beg you to take the time to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. If you are saved, I encourage you to make a decision in your life to help you get closer with the Lord. If there's anything specific we can do to be a blessing or to pray for you, we encourage you. Look us up on the internet at riverviewbc.com. Once again, that's riverviewbc.com. Or if you would prefer to call us, you can give us a call at area code 920 530-6308. Once again, that number is 920-530-6308. If there's anything we can do to be a blessing or an encouragement to you, please let us know. We would love to make ourselves available. Thank you.